And when I told ILD that I had an idea that was going to make them millions, I said, look, I'm only going to tell you the idea if I'm allowed to have half the profit and I want half net. And, and they said, yes. And at 21, I bought my first Ferrari. One of the things I love about the creative and marketing industry is that it's full of characters, people with incredible creativity, drive and energy. Mark Lewis is one of those characters. He's got an incredible life story combined with a passion to educate and inspire a new generation of creative talent. This is a cracking episode which takes a few unexpected twists and turns. I know you'll enjoy it and always please do share and leave us a review. So the first question always is, um, if you could be stuck in a lift with someone, who would it be and why? I thought that was such a great question to start with as a format, because really what you're doing is being your typical generous selves. Because what you're doing by saying, who would you want to be stuck in a lift with and why, is you're throwing a really soft ball for an elevator pitch. And um, God bless you for that. Um, if I could be stuck with anybody in Lyft and why, well, it's obviously with the owner of any agency or brand so that I can give them my elevator pitch. Like that's who I want to be stuck in an elevator with. So, you know, if anybody is watching or listening this podcast who happens to run an agency or the marketing of a brand, I would want to very quickly tell you why supporting diversity and creativity will give you a 10x return. How um, you know, you'll get ideas that transform your brands, that, that give you a competitive advantage, that you get access to the world's best creative talent uh, and a library of learning. Um, and then I would want to remind you of, um, of something that the late, great Alvin Toffler said in his book, Future Shock. He said he wrote this in 1958. He said that the illiterate of the 21st century won't be those that can't read or write, but those that fail to learn and unlearn and relearn. And so I would say to you, what are you doing as an agency about your learning and development budget? If you are keeping people in your organization for you know, more than a couple of years, then in a fast-changing sector like the Marcoms sector, we have a fundamental duty to make sure that our people are, are not the illiterate of the 21st century, that we are helping them to learn and unlearn and relearn. And the best way to do that is to go back to school. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> could Mark and Phil, could we make that lift happen one day at Podge? Get some agency owners together. Let's get them all in the lift and Mark and just wheel Mark in. Yeah. <laughs> do what? I break wind if I had too many of them in a lift, Dan. I don't know what you're saying. Um, but yeah, I, mean, I, I love that question that you ask for that reason. It's a really typically generous, you know, Dan and Phil question. And, and that's what I would do. I would... I would give the elevator pitch that we have a responsibility to educate our people and the next generation of people. Brilliant. Good one. Okay, well, how's this for the next question then, Mark? Because that was, as you said, a nice opener for you. How's this one? Describe yourself in three words. <laughs> Diehard Guna. Um, yes. My three, <laughs> my three words, um, if I were to have a job title, I'm a circus ringmaster preacher. That's my job. I, I'm a circus ringmaster. I run a crazy circus, not a school. Um, and I stand at the front on my pulpit um, every morning and I deliver a sermon. So I'm a circus ringmaster preacher. Great answer. 
Love that one. Brilliant. So, Mark, you're the dean of the, the capital letters, the most awarded <laughs> ad school in the world. Yeah. But you were also a former student. And can you tell us a yeah. little bit about the journey from Croydon Scallywag to SCA Scholar? God, how long have we got? I got my first sort of job job at 13 um, in a computer shop in Croydon, High Voltage, um, which was opposite Surrey Street Market. And it was owned by the man that would eventually set up PC World. Um, so I was learning to sell at 13, but I'd already sort of taught myself a bit to sell. I had little businesses, you know, 11, 12 years old, sort of hiring blowtorches from the HSS shop and sort of clearing people's paths of, you know, ice or snow or whatever, and, and then hiring kids from my school to do the same for me. So I was, I was entrepreneurial um, from a very, very young age. I want to say from 10, 11, 12 years old. And I got my first job at 13 as I say, at High Voltage and such, off Surrey Street Market, where I met a boy called Tony Big Hands. And Tony Big Hands was your local dealer um, in anything from um, fake Rolexes, Cartiers, Givenchy's, that sort of thing. That's why he was called Tony Big Hands, um, to car stereos. And I was just thinking just recently that I'd be fucked in 2022 because in sort of 1986, um, you know, you'd go and nick a few car stereos and they were really easy to pull out. And, you know, you could put out a couple of stereos on a Friday night, and that was 40 quid from Tony on a Saturday. And um, and so I fell in, I suppose, a little bit into some wrong crowd, as boys do, as teenagers do. And um, um, eventually I got expelled a couple of times from my secondary schools for, let's just say, entrepreneurial things. I didn't do anything bad, but I did entrepreneurial things. I don't know how long we've got. I mean, I could tell you a dodgy timeshare story where I don't come out looking very good, but I got expelled. <laughs> and um, um, I grew up with incredible privilege. My, I was born in a, in a relatively... My, my, my father had a stall on Petticoat Lane when I was born, uh, but he put himself... He, was a very, he is a very hardworking man. Put himself through law school um, and, and was a minicab driver when I was a toddler. Um, and then... Um, you know, worked really, really hard, and eventually we had a really, really beautiful, a beautiful house, beautiful mansion house in on the Web Estate. You know, the whole thing, and um, and then when I was 19, 20 years old, Dad got arrested um, for mortgage fraud and was made bankrupt. Um, he was later found not guilty, but the house went and all the trappings went, um, and he was unable to work. I mean, he, you know, he took it obviously very, very badly and was was unable to work. And and I'd been expelled from school and fucked up A-levels and all this sort of stuff. So I got myself a job in a department store in Wimbledon in, uh, in Debenham selling Roald Dalton um, knickknacks, you know, mainly figurines to old ladies and this sort of thing. And um, in the staff canteen at the Debenhams, there was a copy of the Guardian newspaper. And I picked it up because I wanted to look intelligent. It's not my thing. I was more of a sun, mirror, sports star sort of boy. But the Guardian was all there was. And in there was a competition to win a, a scholarship at, at John Gillard's School of Communication Arts. And, um, and I'm incredibly, incredibly lucky that I won it. Um, just as a, as a, I mean, how lucky I am. I, I did all my ideas whilst I was standing at the concession of Royal Dalton in Debenhams because sort of from the afternoons onwards, it was just quiet there. All the grannies would come in first thing in the morning to buy their, to buy their Royal Dalton figurines and they'd fuck off home, um, for lunch and, and you wouldn't see them again. And then the stock shop would be empty. Uh, and so I would just sat there and I just wrote ideas, you know, for this for this competition brief. 
And I didn't think I was good enough. And so I just put my idea away on my bedside table one one day. And my mum, typical Jewish bum, thought I had a drug habit. And so she was looking at my bedside table for needles because I think Grange Hill at the time had Zamo going, just say no. Or So she was looking for needles in my in my bedside table. The idiot, she should have been looking at my books or Rizzlers, but what the fuck does she know? And and she <laughs> and so she found she found my ideas for this scholarship competition and she sent it in without my permission. And so I'm doubly wow. lucky. I mean, I'm all, all shades of lucky. I'm lucky I went to the canteen and picked up the Guardian and was able to work on it in the afternoons when there was no customers. And I took it home. I didn't throw it in a bin. And my mum thought I had a drug habit and she sent it in. And John Gillard saw something. I, mean, I can't begin to describe how much luck I had, but that school changed my life. That's uh, a n- stupid long answer. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> that was a, it was a brilliant answer. How you how you got there? How you got from where you were to to that course? And John Gillard, yeah, quite a reputation. And he taught John Hegarty, didn't he? And Michael Peters and a lot of the the bank and yeah, 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 yeah. So can you tell us a little bit because that that era that when you went there were you in the last year of John Gillard's reign of school yeah John I mean John taught Sir John Hegarty when John well both of John's were at what was London College of Printing what's become London College of Communication I think he taught Graham Fink at Falmouth um, so he set up the SCA towards the end of his career you know, he had Parkinson's when he opened the school and got very ill um, as he was running it so yeah I had Again, another enormous chunk of luck that I got, I got to spend the whole year with John when he was still well enough, you know, to give you his whole year. And that wasn't the case by the time I left, you know, he was no longer able to give all that incredible energy. Yeah. One of the sayings apparently he used to have was find the things that keep people up at night and then attempt to solve that problem. Is that what you went out to do afterwards? Yeah. I mean, but I quoted at the beginning of, of um, your first question, uh, I quoted Toffler, and that was the first book that John gave me was Future Shock. Right. And uh, he gave me that, certainly within my first week at the school. It's an incredible book. He was an incredible man. And the opening paragraphs of that book, Toffler says that everything is a process from the smallest ga- um, bacteria to the largest galaxy. Everything is a process and all processes evolve. And I think what John was trying to say to me in getting me to read that book is that there's an opportunity to, 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 to reinvent or reformat anything to be better. Anything can be improved. Everything can be improved. As a creative, what I took from that, my, my gig was, uh, was to try and find ways of rewiring processes to make people's lives better, to solve problems, to, to give people fixes. I don't think that's the only way in advertising. I would say that John, John gave us other ways as well. What John definitely wanted us to do was to stand out, be noticed for the right reasons. Always, always for the right reasons. He hated a pun um, if there was no reason behind it. Or he hated anything that was offensive. Actually, he hated anything that was offensive, really. But anything that was offensive without intelligence, he really hated. I remember when I was at the school, John Brown passed to be Labour leader. Was it John Brown Gordon. before Tony Blair? Gordon Brown. No, no, no. John, um, John, who was it before Tony Blair? Before Tony Blair. I want to say um, 
Ah, I want to say John Brown. I'm going to bug me now. One of your um, listeners will, will know. Anyway, I remember writing a really tasteless topical ad because John used to get us to write topicals. And I remember writing a really tasteless topical um, and it really, really upset John. Um, so he, he wants you to always stand out, always in good taste if you can, for the right reason. Um, I wouldn't say only solving problems. But definitely when he gave me future shock, it was a light bulb moment. It was, yeah, solving problems is got is gotta be front of mind. It's 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 gotta be my main it's gotta be my main thing. And where did that take you after the school? Well, I mean I, I left the school in nineteen ninety four, early ninety-four, and I at the time I was partnered with an amazing art director. I really enjoyed working with him. His name was Seb, and um he came from he came from money. He was a bit of a, you know, came from an advantaged background and I think he had his comforts. He was a good looking boy. He was in a relationship. He was a model. And, and I wanted to fuck off to South Africa um, because Nelson Mandela was about to get elected. And I wanted to watch a bit of that, experience a bit of it. And Seb didn't want that. He wanted to, you know, stay with his girlfriend and stay with his family and, and stay with all those comforts or whatever. So we split up and I became a, a single copywriter. And I got hired by Leo Burnett in Johannesburg to be the writer for an associate creative director, first job out of school. And, uh, you know, the idea of a kid, literally two, I had two weeks placement at GGT, and then I was on a plane to Johannesburg to be the writer for an ACD. I was way out of my depth, and I was behaving like a schoolboy, and I got fired within, I got fired within three months. Just everything I did was like puerile and silly and blah. And and I had no craft skills. You know, I was straight out of school and I was I was partnered with an ACD. And so I went to another agency that was starting up called Network. It was like a, a TBWA offshoot to, to look after the Nissan account and a few other bits and pieces. And I went there and I got in there because of my book and because I've been to the SCA. And again, I got fired because all my ads were too rude and blah. And, and so now I'm in Johannesburg and I'm loving, I'm loving the vibe. You know, it's new South Africa. Mandela is in, in charge and there's a great atmosphere. And I think the Rugby World Cup was on as well. And, you know, everything was going on. It was a really, really, really great time. And, and I didn't want to go back to London and tell Seb that he was right, you know. <laughs> so, um, so I stayed and I, and I turned my maid's hut into an ad agency for myself. And because all houses in South Africa have a maid's hut. So I turned my maid's heart into that little office and I got myself a client. And my first client was an American telecoms company uh, called ILD, International Long Distance. What they did back in the, the early, mid-1990s, if you want to do a long distance call, it cost a fortune. But you could prepay minutes of long distance calls by buying like a, a card that had a number of prepaid long distance minutes in it. And most of these calls were bounced out of like telephone exchanges in California from AT&T or Bell or whatever. So ILD were selling these, these prepaid calling cards through their, and their brief to me was sell cards, was increased revenue. Now, as I said to you earlier, you know, when I read The Guardian in Debenhams in, in Wimbledon, I wasn't a Guardian reader. I was a Sun, Mirror, Star, Sport, basically anything with pictures. And most of those, most of those um, newspapers, they had lots of sex line ads in them. And what I noticed when I was in South Africa was there was no sex line ads. And I just thought that was quite weird. So I did some research when I got this, when I got this brief and I discovered that in 1987, the apartheid government banned sex lines. 
There were no sex lines because they were banned. Uh, it was illegal to say five certain words on the SA Telecom Exchange. Right. And then I looked into things a little bit further, and I found that the world's capital, the, head, the global headquarters for sex lines was in California, which is where my client's technology was based. And then I did a little bit more um, research, and I, I, I discovered how telecoms companies make money, and that's in core minute swaps, minutes in and minutes out. So they don't swap currency, they swap core minutes until there are no core minutes to swap. And then I discovered that if you put um, termination devices in places that had very few minutes out, and the three that I chose were Soatomi, Moldova, and Papua New Guinea, if you drove lots of calls into those countries, the, the telecoms company going into those countries, Bell Telecom, AT&T, whatever, will be forced to give Moldova Telecom, Papua New Guinea, or, or Soatomi Telecom, forced to give them currency. And in doing so, you get commission. And in doing so, I worked out how to bring sex lines back to South Africa. And when I told ILD that I had an idea that was going to make them millions, I said, look, I'm only going to tell you the idea if I'm allowed to have half the profit. And I want half net. And and they said, yes. And at 21, I bought my first Ferrari, like two weeks after I signed that deal. And about two minutes after I bought the first Ferrari, I crashed my first Ferrari's wing mirror into my gated development. I mean, I was a dick. And, 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 and there, there began my life as an entrepreneur was a you know, problem solution that John had taught me and the luck, as I say, that got me into the SCA. I was, you know, a sun mirror star expelled from school sort of boy, but spotted what was not there in South Africa, those sex line ads and, and used that to bring sex lines back. And from there, I, I got into technology and realized that, you know, what was written in, in Toffler's book, Future Shock, find processes and recreate those processes was staring at me in the face. And I've done that ever since looked at a problem and generally solved it by rewiring. So would you, would you say that your skills then, because people who know you vaguely, they will just see a, cr- <laughs> a creative guy, you know, your yeah. everything about you. The way that you are with the students, etc. You know, it's just you're in the creative world. You're a creative guy. Actually, a lot of your background is tech, isn't it? Tech and finding solutions in digital that doesn't always go with that. So, where where do you see your absolute strengths? No, you're right. So, what John saw in me, I think the reason he gave me future shock was I was there to be a writer. But you know, I got I got a U in English. I got a U in pretty much everything. So, you know, I was never going to be the next Tony Brignall. Do you know what I mean? That, that, was not, that was not my destiny. But I was born in 1973, which means I'm of a generation that got the Commodore VIC-20 or the Commodore 64 or the Commodore Amiga. So I would have learned basic code at 13, 14. My, my magazines were ones that, that got me to understand the premise behind If This Then That, um, which is essentially, you know, programming is... And, and behavioral economics, really, um, advertising is about if this, then that. And I was just able to, to feel comfortable in that space. When I watch my parents, um, play with technology, they're scared they're going to break something permanently. And, and I've never had that fear. I think also when I watch my children play with technology, they also have that fear because they don't get to see the if this, then that behind it. But, um, I think for a very short period of time, again, I'm talking about my luck. But my generation, that generation that was born between about 71 and about 75, it's a really small cohort, they would have been taught basic at school. They would have had the Convict 2064 Amiga. And, um, and so there is, a, there is an understanding that 
that almost anything is possible, perhaps, for example, with technology, that maybe somebody that's born in the mid-60s or the late 70s would find it slightly more difficult to see. Interesting. That year that you were born, 73, was the year I came to London. Oh, cool. And I I just finished a five-year apprenticeship, and the apprenticeship was in hot metal type. Uh-huh. So, sure. Which is as far away as you can possibly get from how the world became with all the digital, etc. But back yeah. then, that was the height you know, coming to London to be able to go and work in hot metal, that was that was a dream. But do you know what, Phil? That book, Future Shock, was already out when you came to London, and it describes the internet incredibly. Like, Tofflet oh. in that book, Future Shock, Amazon is in there, Spotify is in there, Netflix is in there, the cloud is in there. You know, all of that was already in that book, which wow. he started writing in 1958. Wow. And Mark, the story so far is so fascinating. How does that begin to unpack over the next few years? Because you then, it's true, you come back to the UK after a period of time. And what were some of your sort of key highlights or proudest achievements over that period? Because I know we're kind of bouncing a little bit now, but this, this balance of solving problems and tech and creative, how does that journey look? And what were some of the key highlights along the way? Oh, it's a difficult question to answer because I'm, I'm not massively proud of my personality, my persona before school. I was very focused on wealth creation, uh, you know, in my life before the school. So I, I feel a heat of embarrassment in my cheeks or whatever when I kind of think about myself in that period, you know, fast cars that I couldn't drive well and girls that I was chasing that I knew were only with me because of my car. You know, not a very nice person. I feel I wasn't a very good person. Am I, am I, what am I proud of? Oddly, Phil, when I was at Podge one year, I bumped into Will Liebens. I don't know if you remember the name or yeah, um, yeah. Will Liebens. Yeah, Will was one of my very early hires in one of my first dot-coms when I moved back to London. And one of the things I'm really proud of is being able to spot young people and give them their first opportunities. And I did that for Will, for example. So I took Will straight out of school. Will teamed up with Chris Mayer, didn't he? Yeah. You know, Will's had great success in his own right. Yeah. And I'm sure he would have got there with or without spending time with this crazy fool. <laughs> but what I'm proudest of is all the businesses that I built, I built them with teenagers and people in their early 20s. I spot wow. potential in people. And, and I hang around with people. I jump onto their coattails before they learn to sprint. And then I, I look brilliant because I'm in a blur because I'm holding onto the coattails of young, brilliant people. Um, so if you ask me what I'm proudest of in my time before the SCA, yeah, Phil, when I was at a podge about eight years ago and I bumped into Will and I was like, what the fuck are you doing here? And he was like, I run a great business now. Yes, that's what I love. I'm proud that I find great people spot the potential in them, and then I'm able to hopefully help them unlock a bit of their potential. Do you know, you've mentioned two dates now. 1973, the year you were born, was the year <laughs> I came to London. 1994 was the year you left the SCA. And that's the year I started Podge. Wow, look at that. It's actually 28 years next year. That's We're so connected. Funny, but going... To the, the key now, you decided to reopen the school in 2008 after a period of closure after John had died. You were yeah. at that point technically a dot-com millionaire. Yeah. So what was the catalyst for the career change and, and what did you do to bring to the, the new SCA that hadn't perhaps been there in the previous? The previous SCA and the current SCA, I think common thread that we both value the idea massively. The idea comes first. 
way before execution. Also in common with the old SCA, we have lots of great people teaching. John was an incredible figurehead, and I'm decades away from learning how to do the job as brilliantly as he did the job, if ever. But he has also a great cast. Um, and so when I described myself earlier as a circus ringmaster, you have a great show. You put on a great show by having amazing talent around you. And he, he had amazing talent teaching, and we have amazing talent here um, teaching. So there is a commonality between the two. The old school was a charity. We're a social enterprise. And there's a massive difference between the two. Charities are not sustainable. When John passed away or retired and passed away, our myopic and selfish industry, because it didn't have a visionary to follow, it didn't have a vision to follow. And um, and so it stopped supporting the school because it didn't understand why it needed to support the school. And the school died minutes before before John died. Do you know what I mean? Actually, years before, yeah. but it died. Whereas this school is a social enterprise. As I said in your first very generous question, in your elevator pitch, anybody that invests in the school needs to see a 10x return in the same way that when I worked with venture capitalists, they demanded a 10x return from me. That was a um, a given. Um, and so this is a big difference between SCA 2.0 and the original is anybody that sponsors the school. And we have, you know, three dozen or so incredible sponsors, the likes of Adam and Eve or or, or Mother as very sexy, sexy agencies, or great brands like Specsaver, amazing uh, people in um, in the in the social space like We Are Social, or or PR like uh, Three Monkeys in. I'm going to get in trouble if I don't name everybody, but I can't name everybody. These amazing sponsors, they would expect a 10x, and so that's a very big difference between, I suppose, between the two schools. So so then to pivot back to why am I why am I running this school and no longer focusing on you know becoming a billionaire or buying Twitter or or whatever that path was, I fell out of love with money, gents. I I had a breakdown. I tried to sell my business to Motorola Ventures. They wanted to buy my business. I really wanted to move to Chicago where Motorola were headquartered in Schaumburg. Everything made sense as well as Aguna. I'm a Chicago Bulls fan. It, you know, they had won their five rings. Everything I really, really, really felt was a good deal. Had a brilliant term sheet for Moto Ventures. But my VCs wanted to see a 10x return. And all they were seeing was like a triple or a quadruple of the money. So they said it was too early to sell. And and I had lost control of my business. You guys know me. I'm a control freak. Like, no one tells me what to do. And they told me I had to do another few years and in London. And I didn't want to do another few years in London. I wanted to go to Chicago. To Chicago. <laughs> For you know, you know, to run Motorola's sort of creative department with technology, you know, I, that was what I thought my my next step was. And they said no. The Swedes, my VCs were Swedes, so I call them the Swedes. The Swedes said no, and I had a I had an enormous breakdown. And it took me a few months, came out the other side, and I thought, you know, I'm not going to make VCs money. I'm going to make agencies money. I'm going to ask agencies to to put their money where their mouths are and to fund diversity and creativity and and elitism with, with inclusivity. And in return, I'm going to make sure they get the 10x. It's not going to be the VCs that get the 10x. It's going to be, if you own an agency, if you support this vision, I'll make sure you get a 10x. And that's been my journey ever since. You mentioned Twitter. Yeah. Your thoughts on Elon Musk at the moment? What's going on there at Twitter? Do you have any? 
Reader, you're listening to this, uh, what is it, the 20-something of, of November. So Twitter may or may not exist by the time you're reading this <laughs> this podcast or whatever. I don't know. What's my thoughts on Twitter, Phil, and Elon Musk? I don't know. I have a nasty suspicion, feeling that we are, all of us, watching a, a man in the middle of a midlife crisis and a breakdown. And we're all laughing at him. And it feels uncomfortable. Yeah, he is clearly on a spectrum. I can relate with that because I am too. And I feel a connection with him on in some levels. And I don't know, I'm, I feel like I'm watching somebody sometimes not quite in full control over what he's doing, saying, thinking, feeling. I, you know, sometimes the more the more of a platform or power you have, the more damage you can do to yourself and others. Right. So that's sort of what I'm thinking. But I might be wrong. He might be. He yeah. might he might prove himself again to be a great genius. You know, he gave us PayPal and a big part to play in Tesla and SpaceX and and a whole bunch of other stuff. So who am I as some weirdy beardy boy in Brixton to to second guess the man? I'm just nervous as I read everything on Twitter. It feels sometimes that people in my network are are bullying somebody who is on a spectrum who might be acting out because maybe he's in the middle of something that that he's not in full control of. Another thing you just met, you mentioned, Mark, earlier on was around the kind of diversity piece. Now, I know that there's a real emphasis at the school on equality and diversity. Can we just unpack that a little bit and talk about exactly what that means to you? Because very you know, widely used phrases, how does that look to you? What does that mean for the school? This industry loves a buzzword. We love a buzzword when it comes to new platforms. So we get excited right. about TikTok or Be Real or... You know, we love a we love a new thing, and we love a new bandwagon to jump on. When I started the school, I think that we were we were starting for a little while to talk about class, not for very long, and then it went to gender, and then quite rightly with George Floyd, color became a, a a moment of focus that the industry jumped on. So let's separate stuff that's truly important, diversity, with stuff that is misrepresenting, which is the bandwagons that agencies jump on. And you can tell when an agency is jumping on a bandwagon because they tweet about it a lot. But when you go and visit their agencies, the people that are running those agencies are not very diverse. And so, so for me, diversity is, is, is obviously we don't solve anything until we solve color and all the injustices of generations of challenges that we got fixed there, but also gender. And we're starting to have more of a sense of what gender means in 2022. And it probably means something very different in 2022 than it did in, I know, 2012. Um, so that's quite interesting. But also age, you know, if you walk around most agencies now, they're very ageist. The leaders might be in their 40s, perhaps in their 50s, but unlikely. And there's nothing else in there. There's no boomers that, that are working in, in the creative department, despite the fact that, that boomers will be, be making a lot of purchase decisions in, in the high street. You know, there's, there's not much boomer creativity. But yet there are lots of people that are perhaps in their 50s, 60s, 70s, from other industries that we could train to come into the creative department that could come in unjaded. But uh, we've had a few of those. Last year, I had a, um, a gent in his mid-40s who won a place at Cream. Or it's mums. I had three mums last year in my school that wanted to, to get back into the, or get a job, but get a job as a creative. Or it's neurodiversity. Like I spoke about, you know, I've, I'm on the spectrum and I've got a few students most years that are in many creative departments. But businesses don't seem to be built for uh, understanding how to work with people that are neurodiverse. So, you know, so there'll be a lot of people that work in a lot of agencies that will be taking a lot of piss out. For example, Elon Musk, your question earlier, because we're not trained in, in organizations to be aware 
of people's differences and how to connect those different dots in interesting ways. So there's a lot to unpack, as you quite rightly said, about diversity. For me, it's something that's that's paid a lot of lip service. It gets spoken about, but mostly, and I'm not just blaming agencies because most of society doesn't spend enough time, I feel, living it and being it and and celebrating it, uh, which is a shame because if there's a if there's a reason why we're the world's most awarded ad school. I think one of the reasons, one of the, the greatest reasons is our secret source, which is how diverse our room is. The more different backgrounds we, we come with, the more we're able to talk about different genres of music or different food that we eat or clothes that we wear or whatever it is, different, different dots that we put up on the wall, we're able to draw different shape patterns and, uh, and, and make new connections. And, uh, and that's, why, that's why we stand out and that's why we win everything, everything because we're diverse, um, where, you know, where, 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 you know, a room that looks like Nazi Germany, where everything is blonde and blue eyed and looks the same, it's going to lose the war. (laughs) 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 Oh man, what am I saying? Well, you must feel like a proud father every time a cohort leaves and gets snapped up. You've had some real high achievers. Can you tell us a, a few of your highlights? Similar to like earlier, I mentioned a few of my sponsors, and no doubt I would have pissed off loads of people. You know, Gravity Road, you're brilliant. Havas, what phenomenal. Sorry, I'm so sorry I missed you out. And in the same way, when you ask me as a proud father to think about my students, it's really, really difficult, Phil, because some of them I'm proud of because of their work. Some of them I'm proud of because of their behavior. I mean, I'll give you an example. On behavior, Tom Fenwick-Smith, who was a student of mine four or five years ago, got a job as a creative director at three. The very first thing he did was sponsor the school. Reciprocity, that that spirit, the school's North Star. Um, I talk about that 10X thing. Uh, we're, we're all about reciprocity. So when Tom, the minute he became a, a CD at three, the very minute he became a sponsor, was like, email, right, Mark, how, how give me everything I need to get this through. What can I do? Uh, that made me hugely proud. Wow. Right now, again, we're talking about it's the 21st of November, for me, the two best Christmas ads so far are John Lewis and National Lottery. They're both from Adam and Eve, who are a sponsor. Both ads are by SCA alumni. So we've got the John Lewis ads. We've got the National Lottery ads. I think they're one and two this Christmas. Yeah, that makes me proud. Or, you know, I went to a couple of weddings at the summer from students that met at the school. Mary and, and, and Kenny, for example, who also won the Black Pencil together. So they're a creative team. They're now husband and wife. They met at the school and they invited me and some of my, my, my mentors and their classmates, some of who flew from Chicago to be with them. That made me proud. Or in my very first cohort was a, a black student from a working class family. Father was, uh, parents are hairdressers. You know, he'd never been to uni and he had a business idea whilst at the school. Um, he called it the Airbnb of retail in his pitch. One of my mates, Russell, stuck 10 grand into his business as seed funding. And that business is called Appear Here. And it's worth way over 100 million pounds now. You know, it's a phenomenal business with headquarters, London, New York, Paris. And, you know, he's a, Ross is a superstar. Or Noam, who she was an exemplar of how bad our care system is. And despite her scholarship, she was still struggling at the school, but turns her life around, came off the drugs, uh, won her black pencil um, and is now a superstar at Grey. 
you know, got a lovely flat, got a lovely partner, got a great dog, talking about perhaps getting married in the next year or so. So I'm very proud of her and that she calls my daughters her sisters. So it's a difficult question. I'm proud of so many people for so many reasons. You actually took her in to your house and looked after her when she was going through a bad period. Is that right? Yeah. 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 I mean, that's quite special. I go back to, you asked me to define my, my role in three words, circus ringmaster preacher. And I genuinely believe that, that a good preacher would open her or his house to the sick, the poor, the needy, uh, to go and live with them. I just think that's what they would do. So that's what I did. And me and my wife did. I'm a circus ringmaster preacher. One of your students this year may have a number one. Is that right? The armpit song? <laughs> Nearly. So one of my previous intake, Matt Kennedy, was on Dragon's Den. Last season's Dragon's Den, we had three students, I think. And one of them was Matt Kennedy with Fussy. And he got some Deborah Meaden money. Um, so Fussy make really good deodorants, really, really, really good deodorants. And Deborah Meaden um, is his dragon. And they have a song um, which is farting armpits with dragon um, with dragon stones, Deborah Meaden in it. And every time you listen to the song on Spotify, it takes, I believe, a kilogram of plastic out of the sea. So if you if you want to do a little bit of good, just play that fussy song on Spotify on permanent loop, and um, and you'll be doing good. Yeah, That's brilliant. Uh, I love that story. Okay, Mark. Two quick questions. One, favorite Arsenal player or Arsenal moment. First question. And then second question, I'll give you some time to think about it. I'll tee you up for second question, is we've spoken a lot about talent and kind of the diversity piece. So what's the change needed to ensure that the best talent is getting through to the creative industries? That's question two. Question one, favourite Arsenal player or Arsenal moment? Favourite Arsenal player or Arsenal moment? Um, I'm torn between two. Um, yeah. Uh, Khan is hat trick at Chelsea, probably. Um, yes, <laughs> especially. Do you know that one he scored? He he took one right from almost up where the corner flag was, and it defied geometry, and it went that that probably. Um, yeah, Khan is hat trick. Maybe Arshavin at Liverpool. I think he scored four in one half. Um, yes, I might be exaggerating. Maybe it was in a game, but I think four and a half. But Khan hat trick at Chelsea, probably. Yeah. Um, I forgot about that. Everybody. <laughs> Everybody listening to this that's not into Arsenal or, or that is a Chelsea fan or not into football um, is going to hate me for that. And the quick second question. So I think the first thing that agencies can do to be part of the solution is realise they've got lots of people in their businesses who have chosen advertising as a career. Let's help either collectively work with organisations like the AA or the IPA or, or organisations like Founders for Schools and go into schools and promote our industry. You know, when I was getting into this business in the early 90s, we had, I mean, Saatchi and Saatchi was a, was a household name. You didn't need to be in advertising to know of Saatchi and Saatchi. And, and advertising was sexy, and it, and it pulled people in. And, and now there are very many more choices if you are a creative. And you probably haven't heard of, of advertising or, or communications at large. And so I think the first thing that we need to do is to promote our sector, in schools and colleges. And that is really urgent because two things have been happening since I've been running the school or just before that have been damaging the flow of talent into our business. The first is is the rise of STEM in education, science, technology, maths, and engineering. 
And whilst they are dreadfully or were dreadfully important that we needed to breed more people with STEM skills, that will become increasingly less important in an AI machine learning world. What will be more needed in an AI machine learning world are people that can, that can have ideas and people that are empathetic towards other people, people that have creativity and inter and intrapersonal skills. And these people live inside agencies. So we need people that live in agencies going into schools to demonstrate the power of creativity and the power of empathy through inter and intrapersonal skills. That's the first thing that we can do, that everyone can do, and won't cost any money whatsoever. Even in a recession, we can all do that. The second thing we can do is choose to support the SCA or a similar project. It doesn't have to be mine. I think we're the best, but I'm biased. Also brilliant is Brixton Finishing School and Commercial Break and Ideas Foundation and Creative Equals and a whole bunch of others. Find somebody that's doing good and hang out with them. And the reason for that is you are the average of the company that you keep. If you as an organization hang out with good people, because the average, you are the average of the company you keep, it's going to elevate your behavior. It's going to rub off on you and the people that you're with. Ensure that your organization has put steps in place to support creative talent. As I said earlier, sometimes creative people are neurodiverse. So it's important that we understand how to work with them. Sometimes they're mothers. Uh, and we need to understand that, that they might not be able to do a presentation at, at 9.30 in the morning or 5 in the afternoon or whatever. Sometimes they need role models. We need They need people to emulate. Sometimes they need opportunity to be trusted. So make sure that we put all the steps in place to support creative people and that they won't get burnout. Um, I did some research over the summer, both of my alumni and wider, and more than 80% of creative talents that we, that we polled are suffering from burnout. Now, whilst that sounds alarming, the truth is that most people, not just creatives, post-COVID, are experiencing burnout. Lots and lots of reasons why, but we need to be mindful that we can't do our job as creatives if our brain is foggy. Uh, we need to be alert to opportunity, to insight, uh, and then be able to, to sell those ideas forcefully. And then finally, the thing that, that we can do to ensure that the best talent is getting through is remember that thing I said at the beginning, that the illiterate of the 21st century won't be those that can't read or write, but those that fail to learn and unlearn and relearn. Now, I've got a son who's 27 and he is dating a, a woman who works in a management consultancy. And in that management consultancy, they have a phrase called being benched. When you're benched, you're not working on a project for billable hours. You go into a, um, a state where um, you upgrade your skills. You learn new things so that you can get promoted and charge more billable hour dollar. Um, so being benched in uh, a Price Waterhouse, Accenture, Logica type organization is built into the business model that we're going to upgrade the knowledge of our people so that they're more valuable for our clients. This is an alien concept to most agencies. Most agencies fail to invest in their people except for putting alcohol down their throats on a Friday. <laughs> it's dysfunctional behavior. We spoke earlier about Gnome and, and, and how we helped her recover from her addictions. And we, as an industry, we're putting 90% or more of our spend on people into alcohol and not learning and development. 
And at some stage, we will evolve as a people and we'll look back at those weird ancestors that ran those agencies and we'll question, why are you spending money on beer and fruit and almond croissants <laughs> and not on helping your people not be the illiterate of the 21st century? Wow, great answer. Good answer. You mentioned earlier agencies that support the school. There are some individuals that have been way ahead of everybody else in terms of the input to the school. Who are your own personal heroes? And Oh, my God. Again, you're going to make me miss out on people, Phil. Notwithstanding you two, I mean, Phil, dear reader, uh, Phil's going to blush, but the amount of times that he's helped me personally, the school, you know, make sure I'm on the VIP table at Podge and sitting next to who I need to sit next to to get a sponsorship deal. There are so many people. The, the business model was conceived by me and Rory Sutherland sort of eating too many kebabs and stumbling upon uh, reciprocity and 10xing rather than charity. So, so I'm super grateful for him for that. I got people that wish they could give us money, but give us their time instead. Dozens and dozens and dozens of, um, of wonderful people. Very many of them are, are at Podge. And if I say one, I'm going to forget three. And I'm at Podge next Friday. I don't know when this comes out, but I don't want this to be the first Podge where, where I'm, I'm an outcast. Do you know what? I'm going, to, I'm going to go really curveball here and say if there's one person I'm really grateful for that's not an agency that's helped us, it's my landlord. I just seem to attract incredibly generous people. And we did a runner from the church. Uh, so we used to be in where Mass Nightclub used to be in, in Brixton. I did a runner just before COVID. The building got unsafe. Long story. Don't need to bore you with that. I did a runner to Pop Brixton, which um, is a social enterprise run by lovely people. Really, really wonderful people. And I moved in just before COVID. And when COVID happened, and, um, and we were all locked in our, in our homes from March the 23rd, on March the 24th, the landlord sent an email to all of his tenants, most of whom are in F&B, and said, look, don't worry about the rent. We know times are going to be hard. Don't worry about the rent. You know, it's not, not like you'll have to pay us back at some stage. Just don't worry about it. We'll, we'll find a way. We'll, we'll find a way. And, uh, and then a, a few months ago, um, when the cost of fuel was rocketing, they said, look, don't worry about the fuel. Um, it's going to go up a little bit, but we did a deal and we've secured your fuel prices for the next two years. It's going to go up by 15 or 20%, but it's not going to double. Don't worry. Now, most of the people that are my neighbors are, you know, they're selling burgers or, or chicken wings or, you know what I mean? They're using gas all the time. You know, they're small little enterprises and this incredible landlord, most people think landlords are scum. This incredible landlord has acted with empathy and, and creativity for the betterment of our community. Whoa, what's his or her name? Well, they were makeshift. So it was makeshift with the landlords. They, unfortunately, through all this, the story has an unfortunate ending, Phil, is that makeshift got into financial trouble and got, got saved, got sold. So there are equally nice people running this place now, still as a social enterprise. But yeah, makeshift ran Pop Brixton. And James, who was the governor, just gorgeous. Just really good people. Nice. An example of surround yourself. So you are the average of the company that you keep. And we, we chose to move into a social enterprise to be part of good people. Mark, what's one of life's complexities you would like to see made simpler? Probably learning, you know. I've spoken a lot and I suppose I am your, um, your sort of educated guest. So learning is really difficult, particularly as adults. It's easy as a kid. You get told where to go, when to go there, what to do. You don't have to think. Right. Like you don't literally at school. You don't really have to think. You just need to learn to become a human photocopier. But as an adult, learning is really complex. You need to, first of all, know what you want to learn. 
And then you need to know where to learn it or, or when to learn it or, or how to learn it. How's best for you to learn it? Learning is complex. I've enjoyed that massively practicing my craft in, in learning at vocational level, at tertiary level. What I've been doing over the last year or two, and we're starting to accelerate and I'm loving now, is at continual professional development level. How do you take somebody who is two years into their job or 20 years into their career and help them realize that they've got a lot of growth within them and make them fall in love with learning again um, and and hungry to learn? And, And that's complex. That's most people don't do it. Like if you were to poll your organization or poll the guests at Podge, I suspect something like 95% of people are not currently engaged in learning, probably more. But go back to that Toffler quote, the illiterate of the 21st century, the illiterate of the 21st century won't be those that can't read or write, but those that fail to learn and unlearn and relearn. (laughs) And we're not making that easier on ourselves. Good answer. What a great way to finish off a brilliant podcast. We love that. So as we come to land, as we finish another episode, we'll be back soon with another fantastic guest. We've got a lot going on in the agency world at the moment, including launching our new technology product called OmniBI. If you're interested in finding out about how you can get access to a digital agency and a data platform all in one go, visit omnibi.co.uk.